It's another week, and uh, welcome back here to the Riyabu podcast, where Simon Littlewood and I look through the things that you must do to survive and prosper. Ten things, to be precise. Uh, we covered five of them last week, where we talked about planning to survive, loving your customers and uh, ensuring that they see you as a partner, how to embrace your suppliers looking to the other direction of the supply chain, scaling your OPEX, and Simon had some wonderful news, well, not so wonderful news about cutting people and things like that and how to do it. And if you really want to listen to that one, um, or all five of these, uh, you might like to go back um, here on the Riabu channel and, uh, and listen out for those. The fifth one we covered last Friday was don't be shy and communicate. So Simon, as we head into the new week, we're going to spin it forward. So last week, we talked about all the things that you have to do immediately to stop the bleeding. And now we're getting on to the fun stuff. Because what you're about to tell us is how to grow once the whole COVID crisis is over. Yes, that's right. The purpose of the first five items is really to, to stem the bleeding, to put it crudely, to ensure that you actively and busily and promptly deal with the risk to the survival of your business. And if you do the things that we've recommended, you should, you should have created insights and capabilities that will put you in a good position to prosper once the crisis is over. So in this second five things, we're going to talk about the things that you need to do then to take advantage of that better positioning and prosper. Um, and the first one of which is to develop specific post-crisis growth objectives. So right now, of course, you're probably thinking, Right now, I'm just trying to make sure my business survives, you know, uh, make sure that um, I, I keep whatever customers I have and and ensure that I've even got some revenue coming in and that that check that Donald Trump has signed uh, comes in my my letterbox. Um, so in a sense, you, you need to do the last week's five things just to get a clear head uh, around how to grow post-crisis. Yes, and indeed, uh, several of them are, are continual things. There are some things you need to do immediately, and that is get, get your cost line down to a level where you can survive the new adjustments to a much lower level of revenue. But other things are more like, are more like cultural things. Um, and if you do them right, and a key area would be if I look at develop specific post-crisis growth objectives, which is the first of these items, you're not doing that when you've done everything else. You're starting to do that right from the beginning because remember, one of the key things that we stress is create a new level of customer intimacy, particularly for your major customers. 80-20 rule, top 20% of customers will deliver 80% of your future economic growth. You need to hold them close. You need to create moments of truth with those customers, showing that you really care about them. And what you'll find as you do that is you will learn about customers who are dissatisfied with competitors, with your competitors. You will learn about product adjacencies, that is in cases where they're getting some things from other suppliers that they're not happy with in terms of the timing or, or, or the, um, the quality of the service, um, and indeed additional products that you're not currently selling. Um, a very good example of that would be, I, I now know two uh, special, specialty chemicals companies in Southeast Asia, much of whose business has disappeared but who are both producing hand sanitizer, hand over fist. Uh, and, and in one case, it's more than made up for their previous revenue gap, which I think is quite interesting. That's a classic, wow. that's a classic product to Jason C. And I met him on a call yesterday. And I was very interested to hear what he got to say about that. Because it turned out that they had the right kit and the right ingredients to do precisely that. And of course, because they were a chemical company, they had all the hygienic 
hygiene uh, rules and everything in place. So I think that was very interesting. Yeah. So new customer intimacy, knowing your market, your customers better will help you identify growth opportunities, a number of kinds of growth opportunities. Yeah. Um, yeah, I think that's really I, interesting. But in, in this case, sorry to say, I mean, uh, to, well, actually, I'm not sorry to interrupt after you didn't laugh at my Donald Trump joke <laughs> earlier. Um, but but, you know, you, you did say that uh, post crisis growth objectives. Yeah. I mean, that suggests that it isn't just opportunistically uh, saying, OK, well, we're going to switch our specialty chemicals business to hand sanitizer. That no. sounds more like, uh, you know, you, you, you sit down over a nice cup of Java and then you decide, hmm, what should I be getting into? I okay. think that's right. I mean, I think that in order to be able to move into actual actives, remember, you can't do a lot of these things until after the crisis. But on the other hand, if you don't plan for them now, if you don't understand where the weaknesses are, where you've got competitors who are struggling, where you've got customers who aren't happy with a competitor, uh, you need to know who they are in order to develop specific strategy to go after them, which in many cases you won't be able to implement until later. And indeed, you're quite right. Another one of the things that we're going to talk about next week is how you can target acquisitions and take market share in that way. But that's for later. Um, so for the moment, we're talking about developing growth objectives and we're talking about profit growth, not just revenue growth. So remember, remember there's top line, which is revenue, and there's bottom line which is contribution. And that comes from combination of revenue and margin. So look closer at low margin customers and products which have limited upside and consider shedding or reassigning them going forward. One mm. of the constraints to doing this is that it may have implications for the level of staff that you need to run your business. And this, in my experience, is one of the main reasons why companies are very, are very reluctant to do this. If you are a company, that sells a lot of products, a lot of a lot of different types of product. Uh, you may find that over time you develop what we call a tail, a tail of low margin items where you're not really making very much money, and you kind of rationalise it on the basis that it keeps customers happy, it increases your range, um, and it enables you to sustain a large team. But when you're in a situation yes. where you're already talking about shedding staff, then do it in the light of um, the low margin customers that you might either want to shed or reassign going forward, yeah? I think, you know, to some extent, we all make those excuses to ourselves, right? Yeah, it's very human. Some products that we fell in love with because we spent an awful lot of money on the R&D and, and, and it just seemed too good to throw out at a time when, oh, well, we've invested all that money, we might as well keep going with it. Where you're reluctant to do things because of relationships that you've built, that's not always a bad thing. But the fact of the matter is that most of that is gonna be thrown up in the air now if you're doing the right things to survive. You must take advantage of that and scale your business appropriately. That means invest more with the customers who are going to give you future growth and find ways of increasing your share of their wallet. Find adjacencies, there are other, other things that you can sell to those customers and look closely at your low margin customers and products and either eliminate or assign them. Now, I said reassign them. What does that mean? It means you have the opportunity to go to a distributor or third party and let them sell those other products if they can at a price that makes them a profit but you are assured of your price and your payment terms. So, so, so that's always an option for reassigning didn't products. You, didn't you say in a previous pro, a podcast that it's okay to do low margin business? Margin is not as important right now as cash flow. Yes, I mean, it's a, it's a, it's, you shouldn't do business which is actually losing you money. And in many, many cases, you'll find that companies that are, I mean, if you do a simple test, uh, which is to look at um, what it costs you to process a single transaction, if you're producing an invoice, it typically costs you between one and two hundred dollars just to produce an invoice. That that number is derived from 
the number of invoices you produce and the total cost of the establishment and the kit involved in producing an invoice. If you have margins of 10 or 15%, you have to sell at least $1,000 per invoice simply in order to pay the cost of the invoice, if you follow me. Uh, so, 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 so small transactions, small customers often uh, erode value. And that's a different thing from accepting lower margins on the top 20% of your customers who you want to continue to do business with in order to gin up the cash flow a little bit. (laughs) That's a sensible thing to do. What isn't a sensible thing to do um, is to go on doing business where you're not making a sufficient margin, particularly, and the two things often go together, where those those customers are also not paying you particularly promptly. That's a recipe for disaster, yeah? Yeah. Um, Okay, Uh, hang on a minute. I'm not done with you yet. You you did also say earlier, (laughs) (laughs) you did also say that you should rock on on to your customer and say, Hey, you know, which of your other suppliers, which of my competitors are you unhappy with? Why not switch to me? Uh, I, I'm being uh, a bit facetious. I know yes. that's not exactly what you meant, but yeah. but surely the conversation must happen in that way. In, in um, well, no, not in that way. You come into that conversation by upping the level of service that you provide to customers. And we talked about the proactive service model where you interact with them more frequently, more early, but on the basis of wanting to understand their complaints, their, their, sorry, their concerns, given the pressure that they're under. There's an interesting dynamic that happens in these situations, which, which is that people under pressure, if they detect that you're actually interested in hearing their problems, will tell you far more than they might tell you in ordinary times when they're comfortable and things are going well. So moments of truth is not just confined to you sharing stuff. It's also, it's also a function of showing that you're concerned and letting people tell you. And, and um, in these situations, it's very likely that you're going to hear from a customer where you've taken the trouble to be concerned with them about what they're not happy with in terms of other suppliers and other products and so on and so forth. Very often they'll, they'll serve that up. And if you've got a sales team, and obviously some companies are small, some companies are large, but if you've got a sales team and they're being efficient and they've got a good relationship with customers, they should be learning these things as a matter of routine um, because gathering that intelligence now is absolutely critical. Yeah. Mm. Well, I can well imagine that uh, those conversations do already take place in a very informal sort of way you know perhaps as the customer sees you to the door in in better times uh, they might uh, you know drop a one-liner about uh, about one of the the competitors but in general um you, you have to work pretty hard to get people to talk to you about their customers some some customers are actually i'll say that again you have to work pretty hard to get your customers talking about other suppliers rather um because often you, I mean, you could argue that there is an ethical question here of whether customers should even talk about suppliers uh, to other suppliers. Yeah, I mean, when they're under pressure, either because they can't get product from a supplier because that supplier is not doing very well in their own in his or her own business, or because there are specific concerns, maybe they're being pressed for payment or whatever it is, uh, they will be prepared to share. And it's about cultivating a different relationship with your customer. If your customer isn't sharing with you more at the end of the process of customer engagement that we advocated in our second podcast, then you haven't done it right. Yeah. Um, Interesting. But then again, hang on a second. You you said that you, you know, uh, that they're being chased for payment or they're being pressed for payment. If you, if the customer says to you, oh, I don't like your competing supplier because they keep pressing me for payment. That's not exactly a good omen for you to get paid, is it? Um, well, it depends. I mean, it's horses for courses. And remember, one of the things that we've done is we've worked hard to optimize our cash situation by building stronger relationships with suppliers and customers. 
One of the great advantages of husbanding your cash is that you can, where it's appropriate and it doesn't offend any of your risk criteria, you can, where it helps you increase market share, extend a helping hand to selected customers. I've seen this happen and I've seen it work very well, but it requires that you're very rational and very controlled. Yeah? So um, there are opportunities to invest in your supply chain that is downstream. If you think a customer has got a future, if you like them and you trust their professionalism and they're just going through a temporary patch, take the opportunity, if you can, to go in there and build a relationship and displace a competitor. I've seen it happen. You should be trying to do it right now. Is there anything else uh, that people need to bear in mind, Simon, when you're talking about developing specific post-crisis growth objectives? Yes, I think the other thing is, we uh, and I touched on this a moment ago, um, under pressure from you, uh, is that prudent cash management <laughs> should have given you a war chest and there might be some investment opportunities, not just in customers, but also in other skills and capabilities, in growth, in other words. You know, dis disarray in the market creates opportunities at multiple levels. And the final item is that if you have an eye to the future and you develop post-crisis growth objectives in terms of new customers, new products, adjacencies, and so on and so forth, <clears throat> you should be using this downtime to build skills within your team. Remember, we said in the first part that by doing that and by showing you're committed to the team that you've kept, you're demonstrating that they have a future and you're giving them motivation. But you should also have an eye to building skills that they don't necessarily have now. They might be product-related skills. They might be selling-related skills. In fact, you just asked me some very astute questions on how do we create effective customer dialogue so that they share their situation with us. Well, that can be taught. And if you have a very transactional sales environment, because inherent growth in your marketplace has driven healthy top-line growth year after year after year, then you may find you have to go back and revisit some basic relationship building skills. Use the time to build that. Use the time to learn how to use virtual tools so that you can, in some cases, displace travel costs by Zoom calls. Um, mm -hmm. In general, keep relevant skills build going and find out skills that support, define skills that will support your post-crisis objectives, whatever they are. Yep, good opportunity to Interesting. do Interesting, yeah, so it's not just about um, post-crisis revenue growth objectives in, in the transactional you know, at the coal face, it, it really sounds like a total reinvention of your business. Well, you know, one of the last things I'll talk about, the last two things I'll talk about um, when we get there in podcast four and five is how you can actually change your culture, change your DNA. Um, and I, I don't want to preempt that, but one of those things has to do with the cost control mindset that you have in a company. Mm -hmm. um, and the other one has to do with the way that you have shared goals across different functions. And we'll get to those in time, yeah? Yes. The other thing that we don't want to tell you about is what we're going to talk about in the next podcast. <laughs> okay, we'll tell you briefly. And that is acquisition. Simon, you just uh, touched on it a few moments ago, that that cash that you've been uh, hopefully saving, perhaps even building a war chest as a result of the OPEX cuts that you we uh, talked about in episode four last week. Um, you're next going to talk about how to make those acquisitions and getting well, market share. On the war chest thing, let me just touch on that because one of the things we said in the, in the first five was husband working capital, but also demonstrate to your broader community, to stakeholders, including your lenders, that you're really on top of this. And you might find that you not only are generating positive cash flow from your own improved relationships with customers and suppliers, but you've also created a sufficient credibility to give you access to relatively low cost cash, all in support of acquisitions. And, the process of getting closer to the market by increasing intimacy with key customers and key accounts should enable you to identify where you've got competitors who are struggling, 
and where you can potentially acquire either their business or them, if it's worthwhile. You very often don't need to acquire them. You can go after their, 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 their good customers and leave them with the bad ones. I've seen this happen time <laughs> and time and time again, you know. Uh, leave them with the low-margin customers. Go after the choice plums, yeah, <laughs> uh, and take market share like that. Yeah. All right. We'll good. We, we, will, we will take a break for now, and uh, we will talk about targeting acquisitions and market share in the next episode. Remember, this is uh, part six of a 10-part series where we talk about uh, how to survive and prosper uh, during and after the COVID-19 crisis. Uh, visit us on Facebook, search for Riabu. You can also find us on Twitter. And if the comments box, uh, if there is a comments box nearby this podcast on the platform that you're uh, watching, please, by all means, drop us a comment, a question, perhaps even a suggestion. Maybe you have your own story to tell of the things that Simon's already talked about. And if all else fails, you can still also email us service at riabu.com. Thanks, Simon. Speak to you next time. Thanks, Mark.